Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. The Israel Defense Forces bearing down on Hamas, killing thousands so far, but the terrorists are still able to launch rockets at Israel. Get the report on this with Jason Perry and efforts to bring a short and long-term halt in the fighting. 14 killed in a university shooting in Prague and dozens more wounded. We have more on the shooting that Czech officials say is the worst the country has ever seen. Harvard's embattled president is in hot water again, and it could become a problem for Harvard. The university's board finds more duplications in Claudine Gay's work, and a, white, and a House committee wants answers. A jury finds three police officers not guilty in the death of an unarmed man in 2020. A video captured the, the man saying he couldn't breathe. Actor Vin Diesel hit with a lawsuit by a former assistant. The Fast and Furious star is accused of sexual assault. Talks for a potential merger between Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount Pictures is reportedly in the works. Find out what this could mean for customers. What gives the feeling of Christmas? For some, it's the aroma of fresh pine from a live tree that gets them in the spirit. How a small business owner overcame COVID challenges to bring people this joy. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is finally Friday, December 22nd. Yes, we made it to the end of the week. And you know, the IDF recently just posted video showing grenades found in a school in Jabalia. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I think that was when they were uh, evacuating the civilians, right? And um, then the IDF was searching the area. Yeah. Well, we're staying on similar news, um, but the top news today is the three day after three days delay, the UN Security Council says it expects a vote today on a resolution that calls for suspending the war between Israel and Hamas. The UNSC says a pause in military action is needed to bring humanitarian aid to the Gaza Strip. This comes as a World Health Organization team's report, quote, unbearable scenes in the region. The United Nations says close to 80% of people in Gaza are classified as being in a state of emergency or catastrophe. The Biden White House, which is leery about calls for a ceasefire, says Israeli officials are focusing on lower intensity attacks towards Hamas. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield didn't say how the U.S. will vote on today's measure, but she told reporters if the resolution is put forward as it is now, then the U.S. can support it. Now we take a look inside Gaza. Israel Defense Forces continue to keep the pressure on Hamas terrorists in the Gaza Strip, reportedly killing thousands so far. But through it all, Hamas is still showing itself willing and able to fire rockets into Israeli territory. And today's Jason Perry has the latest on the war. Israeli forces in Gaza City destroyed what they called the network of underground tunnels in Hamas's elite headquarter. Meanwhile, Israeli forces remain in close quarters combat with terrorists in the Gaza Strip. According to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health, approximately 20,000 people have been killed in Gaza since the war began. 
And on Thursday, an IDF spokesperson said they've killed approximately 8,000 terrorists, according to the Times of Israel. And although Israel defense forces are making significant progress, Hamas terrorists continue to demonstrate their ability to launch long-range rockets into Israeli territory. On Thursday, sirens sounded in Tel Aviv and residents ran for cover. Most of the rockets were intercepted by Israel's anti-missile defense system, as seen by the puffs of smoke in the sky. And there were no casualties, according to an Israeli news site. But the pain is still felt in Tel Aviv. Please help us. We need them now. Shaili Hamami's brother, Alex Labanov, is still being held hostage by Hamas in the Gaza Strip. And his pregnant wife is trying to cope without him. She every, every week goes to the doctor to take off herself, but she can't. She broke. She needs Alex to be with her. We need you to help us to get them home back now. We can't leave them there. But will there be another ceasefire to release more hostages? Israel has been vocal in wanting a pause in fighting to release hostages, but remain firm in their plans to continue fighting the war until Hamas is defeated. On the other hand, Hamas said they want the war to end completely before they will release the hostages. On Thursday, a senior official in the Palestinian Authority met with the foreign minister of the United Arab Emirates to discuss a possible ceasefire. And according to the UAE's state-run news agency, they discussed how different countries around the world are trying to end the war. Jason Perry, NTD News. The U.S. is warning Yemen's Houthi group to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea immediately. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says the group has become what he calls bandits, impacting international trade. Here's the Pentagon press secretary yesterday on the Houthi threat. And they really need to ask themselves if they've bitten off more than they can chew when it comes to taking on the entire international community and negatively impacting billions and billion do billions of dollars in global trade, economic prosperity, and international law. Ryder says the spike in recent attacks has affected the economic well-being and prosperity of nations around the world. He says the new task force will respond to Houthi attacks on commercial vessels and aims to ensure safe passage. The Biden administration took Houthis off the list of foreign terrorist organizations in 2021. That was in response to a humanitarian crisis in Yemen over concerns it was blocking civilians' access to basic aid like food and fuel. The U.S. started reviewing the Houthis' status after it hijacked a ship and its crew last month. A shooting in the Czech Republic left at least 14 dead and more than 20 wounded. Police say it was a student that opened fire at Charles University in Prague and that the suspect is dead. Authorities believe the shooter killed his father earlier in the day and was planning to commit suicide. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what Prague officials say is the worst shooting the country has ever seen. Prague's police chief says Thursday's bloodshed took place in the university's Faculty of Arts building at around 3 p.m. local time and that the shooter was found dead. Authorities say 14 people were killed and 25 injured, but warn the death toll could rise. The 24-year-old suspect's name has not been released. Police gave no details about the victims or a possible motive. The country's interior minister says investigators do not suspect a link to any extremist ideology or groups. There is no indication that the matter had any connection to international terrorism. Police say the shooter acted alone and was an excellent student without elaborating further. 
Student Jacob Wiseman says he was taking an exam alone with his professor when he heard the shots and screams. Thankfully, like we locked the door in time and he was not able to open our door. And he just, um, he went from the inside to the balcony where he was also shooting at people. One eyewitness that happened to be walking by campus at the time says when he heard the bangs, his brain automatically rejected the situation until he saw people running out of the building and riot police. Fully equipped with the automatic uh, rifles, uh, covered in Kevlar, Kevlar helms, Kevlar vests. I realized that, uh, okay, this is something going on. Investigators believe the suspect killed his own father earlier Thursday in his hometown of Hastoon, just west of Prague. Officials say he legally owned several guns and had been planning to commit suicide based on a search of his home. He's now the suspect in another killing, in the murder of a man and his two-month-old daughter in Prague last week. Shootings are relatively rare in the Czech Republic. University authorities state they are tightening security in university buildings with immediate effect. The Czech government declared Saturday a national day of mourning to honor the victims. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A quick update on former President Trump's legal battles. A former U.S. Supreme Court law clerk claimed this week the high court is likely to rule against the Colorado Supreme Court decision to remove Trump from the state's primary ballot. Chris Landau told Fox News this week he's confident the ruling will be overturned with one look at it. Landau worked for Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas and the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Landau says it's one of the most anti-democratic decisions in U.S. history and, in his words, is a kind of lawfare. In a separate case, former President Trump is also asking a federal appeals court to delay his defamation trial involving E. Jean Carroll. That's set to start on January 16th. A Manhattan federal jury in May found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carol in 1996 and awarded her a $5 million judgment. Trump's attorneys are appealing that judgment and are asking for a 90-day hold on the trial. Trump's legal team says it needs time to consider other legal moves, like taking the case to the Supreme Court. Up next, Harvard's embattled president is in hot water again, and it could become a problem for Harvard. The university's board found more duplications in Claudine Gay's work, and a House committee wants answers. What this could mean for the university, we speak with a law professor to learn more. Fast and Furious star Vin Diesel accused of sexual assault. More on the allegations from his former assistant when we come back. Good to have you back. New allegations of plagiarism. Harvard's embattled President Claudine Gay faces a fresh round of claims that she failed to credit other academics in her published works. This is the Ivy League University refused to remove her and as the House Committee extends its probe of the alleged plagiarism. NTD's Arlene Richards has the latest on this developing story. Harvard's top governing body is facing more problems. It announced two more instances of inadequate citations in works published by Harvard President Claudine Gay. Gay's publications had been questioned earlier this month. The issues this time were found in Gay's 1997 doctoral dissertation. Harvard said the examples included duplicative language without appropriate attribution. The findings come in the midst of a request by Representative Virginia Fox that Harvard release internal materials. 
Fox, chairwoman of the House of Representatives Committee on Education and the Workforce, launched an investigation after receiving testimony about rampant anti-Semitism on university campuses. On Wednesday, Fox expanded the investigation to include Gay's alleged plagiarism. In a letter to Harvard, Fox hinted that federal funding could be withheld if the university failed to adhere to appropriate standards. The board didn't fire Gay after initial claims of plagiarism. Those findings include Gay's alleged use of work by Carol Swain. Swain, a black academic who studies issues of race in America, told American thought leaders Gay was dishonest. But I do care that the um, academy, the progressives, the elites, uh, that they advanced her, and I don't know that they held her to the same standard. And I think that um, it was dishonest for her not to have given more credit to where she got her ideas from, which would have been my book, Black Faces, Black Interests. Harvard has said that it still has no plans to remove Gay from her position. The board said Wednesday that Gay would update her dissertation and that there was no violation of Harvard standards for research misconduct. The Harvard policy on research misconduct states that there must be a significant departure from accepted practices. The misconduct must have been committed intentionally, knowingly, or recklessly, and the allegation must be proven by preponderance of the evidence. On the other hand, Harvard's Guide on Sourcing says this on plagiarism. In academic writing, it is considered plagiarism to draw any idea or any language from someone else without adequately crediting that source in your paper. The university's own students have called the board's response a double standard. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Joining me now for more on this is William Jacobson, a Cornell Law School professor. Good morning, professor. It's good to have you this morning. First, I'm wondering about what you um, think. Do you think this case affects Harvard, Harvard's academic integrity, you know, reputation? What does it do to Harvard? How is it going to come out of this as an institution? Well, I think it taints the Harvard brand. I mean, the Harvard brand was the best and the brightest. Uh, leading university in the world, perhaps. Some people may disagree, but it's certainly one of the top in the world. And they have somebody who's at the head of the institution who has committed numerous, I think we're up to 10 or 12 or 14 instances of plagiarism based, dating back to her doctoral dissertation. And Harvard is standing behind her. It's an embarrassment to the university. Uh, she really is tainting the brand. Uh, and I don't know what they are thinking because if it was anybody else, they would have been kicked out. If a student did this, they'd be kicked out of school. So why is she being treated differently than a Harvard student? It's a mm. terrible look for the university. Right, so on, I wanna talk about more, more about the reputation of Harvard and how that looks. Is that generally what your colleagues, or let's talk about you know, other Ivy League schools think as well about Harvard? How is it affecting the reputation of Harvard and the uh, high profile? You know, what, what do you colleagues say about it? What are you hearing? Well, I think you can just read what people are writing. I mean, there was an op-ed in the New York Times, I think today or yesterday, calling on her to resign from a prominent uh, you know, black academic. Uh, she stole ideas from a prominent black academic. This is not a race issue as some people are trying to portray it. This is an integrity issue. And when your leader of your institution has been shown not to have integrity, that has to taint the entire institution because she's responsible for enforcing the plagiarism provisions that she herself has violated.
Hmm. So help us also understand more about the technicalities and the specifics that Claudine Gay is accused of. Um, some say there is an inadequate citation, but it is now it is not an idea theft. Tell me more about the differences there. Well, you know, uh, some people say, well, she didn't like steal someone's ideas, but she stole their work. She stole their words. And so I think that's a distinction without a difference. And I think that's a distinction that Harvard would probably not make if it was anybody else, uh, but they're making it for their president. So yeah, people are trying to word around it. And they're trying to, I think the New York Times is now using the phrase that nobody's heard of before, of word repetition or something like that. They're inventing ways to keep her in her in place in, as president of Harvard. And the question is, why are they doing this? And I think they're doing it because there was already a controversy over how she handled reactions on campus and reactions in general uh, that were anti-Semitic arising out of the Hamas butchery of Israelis. So she was under pressure for that. Then this came up and Harvard, I think, has just decided it's going to defend her. And what was incredible is Harvard reached that decision before completing a thorough investigation. Numerous instances have come out after they said they were going to back her and she was not going to be removed. So this is just a horrible thing for the university. Uh, Harvard may think its brand is beyond repro reproach, uh, but so did Bud Light. And I think that this is Harvard's Bud Light moment and how mm. the board of trustees or board of overseers deals with it I think is going to affect the university more than they can even imagine. Right. And brand, the Harvard's brand is, of course, a big point in this. I'm also wondering about the students. How will it affect them? Would it be that it could compromise maybe the high standards by which the students can be held to because a president is not held to quite the same of the standards? Well, I think it'll make students even more cynical than they already are because they will see that they're at an institution which does not live up to its own ideals. And that excuses people in power who violate those ideals. And, and that's a big issue on campuses. So, you know, there is a loss of trust in institutions across society. And there's a loss of trust and confidence in higher ed in particular. Every polling shows that. This is just another example that is not gonna go away anytime soon. Hmm. Thank you very much for your insights today, Professor William Jacobson. Thank you. Moving on, Fast and the Furious star Vin Diesel is being sued for alleged sexual battery. The lawsuit was filed in Los Angeles Superior Court by his former assistant, Asta Jonasson. She alleges that in 2010, Diesel forced himself on her at a hotel in Atlanta. Asa Jonasson is also suing Diesel's company, One Race Productions, and Diesel's sister, Samantha Vincent. The suit alleges that a few days before the incident with Diesel, the supervisor of One Race propositioned Jonasson. She alleges Diesel's sister, Samantha Vincent, who is also the president of his company, fired her hours after the hotel suite incident with the actor. In addition to sexual battery, the suit charges Diesel and other defendants with a hostile work environment, negligent supervision, and wrongful termination. Jonasson is also seeking a civil penalty of $10,000 for each violation. 
Three Tacoma, Washington police officers were acquitted yesterday in a killing of an un unarmed man in 2020. Witnesses testified that Manuel Ellis was shocked with a stun gun and forcefully restrained. Video footage showed one officer restraining Ellis by the neck as another fired a taser into his chest. The officers say they stopped Ellis because he was approaching a car turning at an intersection. They said his behavior was violent and that he attacked them. Police said they had no choice but to respond forcefully. Defense lawyers argued that Ellis died due to his drug use and a heart condition. Ellis had methamphetamine in his system at the time of his death. Prosecution witnesses testified that the officers were the aggressors and attacked Ellis unprovoked while he was standing on the sidewalk. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide caused by oxygen deprivation. And a video captured Ellis telling officers he couldn't breathe. Up next, former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is filing for bankruptcy protection just days after he was ordered to pay nearly $150 million to two former Georgia election workers. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. sounding the alarm about ballot access laws. He says favor the two-party duopoly. Are voters suppressed and prevented from choosing alternative leaders? A reporter examines this. Could internet users be getting a new big brother? NTD spoke with a pair of attorneys about a controversial UN program that would restrict online speech in ways that critics call dangerous. Welcome back. Former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is telling a bankruptcy court judge that he's broke. In a federal court yesterday, the former New York City mayor listed his debts between $100 and $500 million and assets worth up to $10 million. The filing comes days after another judge ordered him to pay $148 million in a defamation case. That lawsuit was brought by two former Georgia election workers regarding the 2020 election. Yesterday, the same judge also told Giuliani to pay up immediately instead of within the customary 30 days, declaring bankruptcy may not eliminate the $148 million in damages a jury awarded to Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Federal bankruptcy law prevents dissolving of debts that come from a willful and malicious injury inflicted on someone else. Let's get an update on the presidential race. We're going to talk to Jeff Lauterbach, a reporter for the Epic Times, to tell us more about a warning from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. saying ballot restrictions favor the so-called two-party duopoly. Well, he has challenges that um, obviously Donald Trump is the presumed Republican nominee and whether it's Biden or someone else is the Democrat. They don't have issues. They're automatically on the ballot. So as an independent, he has guideline he has to collect signatures no no different than if you're running for city council or school board you have to uh collect signatures and each state has different guidelines like some states have 250,000 you have to submit some states have 1,000 uh different states have different deadlines some states you have to get different uh requirements in different regions of the state so it's a very complex situation and requires a lot of money and a lot of time yeah, and this is very serious, considering that RFK Jr. is calling these ballot access laws a form of voter suppression. He's calling on these officials to streamline the process to allow people to get out and voice their concerns and their opinions through their vote fairly. Now, he also has a lawsuit out in Utah. Can you tell us about this? 
Yeah, and that was, uh, I believe, a week and a half ago. Uh, again, there's certain deadlines. Different states have different deadlines to submit the signatures. And Utah, it, it had been uh, January, and obviously that's coming right up. I can't remember exactly, but I think Utah was 1,000 signatures. So it's not many signatures, but it's the deadline that he had an issue with. So he filed a lawsuit and the lieutenant governor was uh, one of the defendants. So a couple of days later, the lieutenant governor came out and said, or she agreed to move the deadline to March before. So he has until March in Utah to submit the signatures of uh, qualified voters. And, but that, even though she moved that deadline, uh, that's still, the lawsuit is still in the court system and it's going to be moving through. So Jeff, that was Kennedy's lawsuit that even said that that was the earliest deadline imposed on these independent candidates and that there was never a January deadline upheld by a court before. Now we look at January here, there's going to be some big announcements probably coming up in Kennedy's campaign, Salt Lake City. Yeah, and there's speculation. Obviously, I've covered this uh, campaign closely since April when he decided to get in. And obviously, he was a Democrat then, and he was preparing for primaries. And then on October 9th in Philadelphia, he announced he was running. So that changed the whole scope of his campaign. So a lot of these states, more than half uh, to submit petition or signatures, you have to have your running mate, your vice presidential candidate named if you're a third party or uh, independent candidate. And there's speculation on January 3rd that he's going to name his running mate. Uh, we've asked him who that will be. And uh, uh, obviously, he's tight-lipped about that, understandably. But uh, it could be another announcement. You never know. When you, that's what the fun thing about covering a presidential campaign. You just don't know what's going to happen. But I firmly believe on January 3rd he's going to announce his running mate because he has deadlines coming up in March, April, scattered across uh, the spring and summer where he has to have his running mate named before he could start collecting signatures. Right. Well, Jeff Lauderback, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you for the update on this. Thank you. Elon Musk wrote on Twitter this week that free speech is a bedrock of democracy, but a UN program aims to restrict it in potentially frightening ways. And today's Daniel Monahan spoke with a pair of attorneys, one who specializes in free speech, the other the author of a blog called Coffee and COVID, about the implications. Have you seen the latest news on social media? No, that's not true. It's a load of conspiracies. The Internet of Trust is what the UN agency UNESCO calls its plan to make the digital world safer. It would clamp down on what it describes as misinformation, hate speech, and conspiracy theories online. Constitutional attorney Erin Mercino says the problem with trying to limit alleged misinformation and conspiracy theories is who decides. Because we've seen throughout the years that the conspiracy theory of today can sometimes become actually the generally accepted principle of tomorrow. Mercino brings up Hungarian physician Ignaz Semmelweis, labeled a conspiracy theorist for saying women were dying after childbirth because doctors weren't washing their hands. The UN program says it aims to protect those it considers vulnerable and marginalized, like climate scientists, journalists, and those in the LGBT community. 
and contains language that would prohibit speech it sees as supporting discrimination based on gender, race, or religion. There can be um, immigration controls put in place for, for very valid, non-discriminatory reasons um, for matters of national security. But would that be considered, you know, speech that would not be culturally diverse enough. Mercino isn't comfortable letting an organization like UNESCO, which has multiple members of the Chinese Communist Party on its staff, deciding which speech is hateful. Certainly the speaker may have no hate in their heart whatsoever, and, you know, they're just describing certain policies that, that they think would be more beneficial, or the person is speaking in accordance with their conscience or their religious views. Discussion of public health measures could also be restricted under the UN program. Attorney Jeff Childers is the author of the daily news blog, Coffee and COVID. He says the word misinformation, under the UN's definition, includes statements that are true. Say you, you tell people the sky's blue, I say that's misleading because you know what? Sometimes there's clouds in the sky and the clouds aren't blue. Right, so I'm going to shut your social media account down. Childer says the UN Charter of Human Rights requires the use of the least restrictive means when limiting free speech. Let's say, you know, you put, you put a funny meme on Facebook that suggests the vaccines are killing people. Well, if somebody's being misled at this point by, by your humorous meme, then wouldn't it be less restrictive for the government to... Uh, put out its own funny meme about how great the vaccines are. They're like vitamins. The U.S. has twice exited UNESCO under the Reagan and Trump administrations. The Biden administration rejoined the agency earlier this year over the objections of some lawmakers. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, a potential merger between Warner Bros. Discovery and Paramount Pictures that could potentially spell new changes for customers. And a popular gift item during the holidays, gift cards have been the center of an increasing number of scams for shoppers. We have some tips to help you avoid some common scams. morning and welcome back. We have NTD business host Don Ma with us this morning to discuss the potential Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount merger. The CEOs of the two companies reportedly met to discuss a potential deal. So Don, how is this going to impact consumers? Well, I think uh, this is going to uh, benefit some. Uh, I think uh, that that's for certain. And some analysts are saying that this merger potentially could create uh, the biggest studio, movie studio in Hollywood, and it will create uh, the big, uh, the third uh, largest streaming service in terms of uh, subscriber count. So if the merger does go through, that means uh, potentially the streaming services of these two uh, companies, which is uh, Paramount Plus and Max, they could merge into one. And just think about that. Uh, for those who are subscribed uh, to the, both of these platforms, uh, that could mean with just one app on your phone, uh, your TV or your computer, you could watch a ton of things you could ever dream of. That's from uh, football, live football, in fact, um, to about every hit movie you can you can think of. And 
It'll probably be cost efficient as well because uh, before if you're uh, subscribed to, to two streaming services, now you're just uh, paying for one. And I think uh, the one combined price will probably be uh, more affordable than paying for two services individually. And uh, besides the consumers, uh, I think this could also benefit uh, advertisers as well because you know, if you think about it, uh, for those people who are on a budget, they can probably only choose one or the other, uh, depending on which one uh, checks more of their boxes, uh, the streaming services. Uh, so if it merges, that means uh, um, advertisers will be able to reach both Paramount Plus and Max uh, uh, subscribers at the same time. And, and uh, the combined su subscription will probably more uh, be more uh, appealing to uh, advertisers because the more reach uh, you provide advertisers, the, the more they like it. And as well, this potential merger could be a way for, for the two companies to compete with Netflix because if they're combining their uh, streaming catalog, they're on a much better footing to compete uh, with the sheer amount of uh, things you can watch on Netflix as well. And so, you know, there's uh, a lot of things that could ben benefit consumers. So uh, in some ways, this could uh, be beneficial for some. Interesting. Interestingly enough, though, not everybody seems to think that they're necessarily better off together. But what else have you been seeing in terms of reactions to this? Yeah, like you said, despite uh, some potential positives, investors are actually uh, not liking the idea of this potential deal uh, because when the news broke, uh, shares of uh, Warner Brothers Discovery uh, afterwards actually went down. And here's the thing. Warner Bros. Discovery has a, around uh, $45 billion of debt, and Paramount has around $15 billion of debt. Uh, so the ongoing decline in the TV business uh, and uh, uh, other things as well is expected to make it harder for the firms to deal with all that debt, uh, which will be combined after the merger. And it's, it's unlikely that um, the debt uh, will uh, go down because you'll need further debt uh, to make this kind of deal, uh, mm. the size of this kind of deal to happen. And not to mention uh, that inevitably you're going to face a, a lot of regulatory hurdles um, right. just because of the sheer size of this deal. And we're already seeing that with uh, Spirit Airlines and JetBlue, they're trying to merge as well. And the timing of this deal uh, right before an up upcoming presidential election will probably increase uh, regulatory uncertainty for these companies. And some analysts are actually saying this deal is sort of a move uh, to uh, a play as well for survival uh, for these two companies. And you know, if we look at uh, other mergers as well, um, like Disney with Fox, um, I mean, how profitable did Disney become after the merger? Its streaming service in the fourth quarter apparently lost uh, more than half, uh, a quarter billion dollars. So, you know, investors at the end of the day are just looking at whether this will be profitable. Yeah, and Don, on that debt, they say you need money to make money, so that could pose a challenge. But just think about the synergy behind it. If Warner Brothers Discovery uses its international distribution to help boost Paramount's franchise, and then if Paramount uses its streaming for the children's programming to boost Warner Brothers streaming ambitions, that could really be, you know, a big plus for them. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely benefits to this merger. Uh, a company with some worries, of course. Yeah. So, Don, do you have anything else? Yeah, sure. Uh, Microsoft is planning to end support for the Windows 10 operating system by October 2025. This could actually result in about 240 million PCs being disposed of, potentially adding to landfill waste. And this is according to Canalys Research. 
Microsoft plans to provide security updates for Windows 10 devices until October 2028 uh, for an undisclosed fee, that is. The next operating system anticipated to bring advanced AI technology to PCs, uh, which could be the boost uh, Microsoft needs for the current uh, sluggish PC market. Mm, yeah, nothing goes over uh, tops Windows XP though, I think. Anyway, uh, what about the trade in the Red Sea that we have talked about a little while back? Uh, any updates there? Yeah, a very important topic here. Uh, Germany's Hapeg Lloyd uh, and Hong Kong's OOCL said on Thursday they would avoid the Red Sea. They're uh, the latest shipping companies to do so after attacks by Yemen's uh, Houthi group. Uh, the hostilities are putting a chokehold on a ship passage through the Suez Canal, which handles about 12% of trade worldwide. And the cost to ship a container from China to the Mediterranean was up 44% in December alone due to the Red Sea disruptions. Uh, of course, this is according to uh, Fredos. Yeah, they're going to have to make sure they get some escorts there or take some action there because that's huge impact on the world economy. Yeah, let's hope uh, the escorts uh, from the U.S. could do something about the situation. Yeah. John Mahos, Deventity Business, thank you. Thank you. And whether you're giving or receiving a gift card this holiday season, listen up. Check carefully to make sure you're not falling for a scam. The Better Business Bureau is warning that gift card scams are surging. Here's more on how you can protect yourself. They're a popular holiday gift idea, but scammers are increasingly targeting gift cards to steal from you. Gift card scam reports are up 50% for 2023 over 2022, and we're not even done with the year yet. The Better Business Bureau is reporting a surge in gift card scams, warning that scammers could be tampering with gift cards and stealing barcodes, or targeting online shoppers and asking them to pay with a gift card that's not from the retailer. That's a huge red flag. There's a lot of scams that are perpetrated where the, the scammer is asking for a gift card, such as like a grandparent scam or a utility scam. The BBB also warns consumers that scammers use other tactics to steal from them too. Before you buy a gift card, here's what to look out for to avoid becoming a victim. One, check for stickers covering the barcode by rubbing your finger over the back of the physical card. The stickers may contain a phony barcode, and when it gets scanned at checkout, you'll unwittingly be sending that cash to the scammer's account. Two, be careful of websites that check your card's balance. The BBB says some sites could use your card's ID number and PIN and drain money from it. When you buy a gift card and you give that number and that pin to somebody, that money's gone. So it's really important to know who you're giving it to and what they're gonna use it for. And finally, check for ripped or wrinkled packaging. The BBB says thieves often remove gift cards from the display rack and record the numbers linked to that card, including the activation pin. And here's a bonus tip from the BBB. Pass on too good to be true gift card deals and avoid websites or social media ads that promote gift cards for popular retailers at big discounts. Scammers use a method to steal payment card info. They recommend shopping directly from the merchant instead. Good tips. And live Christmas trees, COVID sent prices skyrocketing and big box stores are tough competitors, but one small business owner broke through the challenges to brighten up Christmas for many and it involves personal relationships. Find out how in our special report. Santa's reindeer are hitching rides with helicopters. These flying deer in Utah are part of a government research program. We have the details after this.
So Christmas is right around the corner, and what a fun tradition it is to just decorate the Christmas tree, especially if you get the whole family around. Yeah, they got all those things like the boughs of holly, the pine wreaths, the lights. Yeah, and all these now personalized fun things that you can actually hang on the tree. And if you don't have one yet, it's never too late to find your perfect Christmas tree. Yeah, that's right. I went out to investigate what all the rage is about a certain type of tree. Take a look. I'm out here in Cedar Grove, New Jersey at Cedar Grove Christmas Trees and I'm standing next to an eight and a half foot balsam fir tree that came all the way from Canada. And let me tell you, the smell makes me think of pristine snow-covered coniferous forests. Let's find out how these trees journey to people's homes and why. I love the smell. I just love the smell and ever since I was a kid I loved sitting by the tree when everybody was asleep and just looking at the lights and just daydreaming. These trees, able to make it through the holidays, are cut to last. Customers choose varieties for their fullness, type of smell, and the strength of their branches. But this lady points to what she calls a spiritual reason for getting a live tree. Oh, I just like to remember the holidays of old, which are no longer exist because I come from a very big family locally and um, everybody's family's bigger. We live in a more global type of atmosphere where people move and they don't stay close to the community anymore. The workers say when they're brought home and put in water, that's when the smell hits. It means Christmas, the smell. I love the smell when you come in the house. You got the smell of a fresh, we like to get balsam because they smell the best, I think. And it just makes the house smell great. It, uh, it smells like Christmas to me, and if you, if you don't have a fresh tree or at least some fresh pine greenery in the house, it's just something's missing from Christmas. Big box stores sell live trees too, but there's a risk no employees will be around to help with the selection or secure it to the vehicle, but not at this small business, especially if it's a 15-footer. We needed at least two or three guys to take it down and, and carry it over to the netting area to, to get it cut and netted. And then we needed about four or five guys pulling the tree uh, to get it through the, the netting station. And, um, and then we needed a couple more guys to get it up on the car and tie it up. Meet the owner, Rocco Malenga. He says he's been doing this his whole life. There's people come here that have seen me since I was a little boy. Uh, and they, they make sure they remind me of it. I'm, I'm uh, a little heavier and a little bit less hair, but uh, they do remember me every year, and it's really special. Here, shoppers pick trees for their looks and check to make sure there are no bald spots. A luxury buying online just can't always deliver. I, I just see the excitement on uh, people's faces when they're here. It's, it's really a special experience. They're here taking photos with their family. Uh, the, the tree just becomes part of the tradition. Malenga says COVID threw their business a curveball with dwindling supply and skyrocketing prices out of their control. These days it's the price. Like everything else, consumers are feeling a little bit of a of a pinch. Uh, we've tried our best here to keep the prices down, keep a good value for families, and uh, I, I think uh, in the coming years we'll, we'll come out of this and, uh, and, and still be doing this and, and uh, keep a good value. Employees face the challenge of unloading an 18-wheeler with five to 600 trees in a few hours, and the business contends with the weather and competitors selling synthetic trees that are mostly made in China. 
But still, they're out there supplying what they call a more traditional Christmas tree. It's so nice that they're actually trying to keep the prices low. And it's, always, it's also a great experience just to go out and pick that tree. Yeah, and you know, you're keeping the economy local, helping out a small business by doing so. It's great stuff. Right. All right, more on Christmas. Santa's reindeer are now hitching a ride with helicopters. But jokes aside, you have to look at these flying deer in Utah. It's not Santa's sleigh and his 12 reindeer, though. It's part of a government research project. Each winter, the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources captures around 1,200 deer in the state. Their goal is to put GPS tracking devices on the animals and track their migration patterns. Yeah, they're just hanging out right there. The deer are caught, fitted with GPS tracking collars, and given health assessments. Then a helicopter airlifts the harnessed deer to a staging area where they're released unharmed back into the wild. That look, that's... That's the best thing I've seen all day with their little legs hanging out. And I think they uh, blindfolded them, right? So they don't freak out about the height and everything. Okay, yeah, that's a good thing. Definitely <laughs> got to keep the animals' uh, mental health in yeah, mind, Yeah, right? Imagine you look up and you just see three deers flying around. Anyway, all right. The second part of our broadcast will start soon, so just hold on one minute until we're back. Hi everybody, I'm Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope right here on NTD. Guess what, we've got a special celebration because it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. So coming up on NTD, we're going to be celebrating a joyful Christmas and you're all invited to watch as we celebrate Christmas in music and song from around the world. Join us on NTD. For the day's top headlines and the news you need to know, tune in right here to NTD Evening News. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. 14 killed in a university shooting in Prague and dozens more wounded. We have more on the shooting that Czech officials say is the worst the country has ever seen. The Iowa caucuses are just a few weeks away. What you need to know as 2024 candidates gear up for their first test. Former President Trump's defense team asks for a 90-day hold on his defamation trial set to start next month. And a former U.S. Supreme Court clerk predicts the outcome of the high court's decision on the Colorado ruling. A jury finds three police officers not guilty in the death of an unarmed man in 2020. A video captured the man saying he couldn't breathe. Holiday travel is at its peak. Are airlines avoiding last year's meltdown? And why are some choosing to take a train? Santa is putting on a scuba mask this year. Stay tuned as we take a look at what he's doing underwater in Florida. <laughs> This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. 
Welcome everyone and happy Friday. Today is December 22nd. In today's top news, a shooting in the Czech Republic left at least 14 dead and more than 20 wounded. Police say it was a student that opened fire at Charles University in Prague and that the suspect is dead. Authorities believe the shooter killed his father earlier in the day and was planning to commit suicide. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what Prague officials say is the worst shooting the country has ever seen. Prague's police chief says Thursday's bloodshed took place in the university's Faculty of Arts building at around 3 p.m. local time and that the shooter was found dead. Authorities say 14 people were killed and 25 injured, but warn the death toll could rise. The 24-year-old suspect's name has not been released. Police gave no details about the victims or a possible motive. The country's interior minister says investigators do not suspect the link to any extremist ideology or groups. There is no indication that the matter had any connection to international terrorism. Police say the shooter acted alone and was an excellent student without elaborating further. Student Jacob Wiseman says he was taking an exam alone with his professor when he heard the shots and screams. Thankfully, like we locked the door in time and he was not able to open our door. And he just um, he went from the inside to the balcony where he was also shooting at people. One eyewitness that happened to be walking by campus at the time says when he heard the bangs, his brain automatically rejected the situation until he saw people running out of the building and riot police. Fully equipped with the automatic uh, rifles, uh, covered in Kevlar, Kevlar helms, Kevlar vests. I realized that, uh, okay, this is something going on. Investigators believe the suspect killed his own father earlier Thursday in his hometown of Hastun, just west of Prague. Officials say he legally owned several guns and had been planning to commit suicide based on a search of his home. He's now the suspect in another killing in the murder of a man and his two-month-old daughter in Prague last week. Shootings are relatively rare in the Czech Republic. University authorities state they are tightening security in university buildings with immediate effect. The Czech government declared Saturday a national day of mourning to honor the victims. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Just tragic. And bringing it back to the U.S. now, Iowa Republicans will be the first to cast their votes for a 2024 presidential candidate in next month's caucuses. The caucus is overseen by the state's party, unlike a primary overseen by the state government. It doesn't require voting at a polling place. Former President Trump is heavily favored to win, but there have been last-minute surprises in the past. And here with us live to discuss how the Iowa caucuses work and how crucial they are is Lawrence Wilson, a politics reporter for the Epic Times. Lawrence, thank you for your time today. Can you start by telling us how these caucuses work in Iowa? Well, it's pretty simple. It's just a gathering of people who live in a particular voting precinct and are members of a particular party. So each party has their own caucus. And instead of going to cast a ballot in a primary election, you show up at a meeting. And at that meeting, they do some party business, like elect local officials, <clears throat> party chairs, and so forth. And then they have a presidential preference poll every four years. So uh, it's pretty simple. People get up and make speeches, uh, lobby for their favorite candidate. Sometimes the candidates themselves show up at one of the caucuses, and then people cast their ballot. And they're counted right on the spot and each precinct holds its own meeting. Really great seeing American democracy play out in those gymnasiums. And I was reading how the Democratic side is actually going to use some mail-in ways of casting their votes there for their preferred candidate. So why is it so important for candidates to do well at the Iowa caucuses? 
Well, one thing is that it's the first of the primary contests. So it's the first time you have something besides a pure opinion poll. These are actual voters who show up and cast their ballot for one of the candidates. So it's a real test for the candidates. And also Iowa is known for one-on-one -on -one campaigning. This is uh, retail politics, as they like to say. So these candidates have crisscrossed the state. They've met with a lot of people. And if they're getting traction in Iowa, it's a good sign that they probably will get traction elsewhere. So it's really important to finish well in Iowa. Oh, yeah, and they get a lot of media attention, too, can really build a lot of momentum for them. Now, according to the Des Moines-Iowa Register, the Des Moines Register-Iowa poll, Trump has a 32-point lead over runner-up DeSantis here. And is it true what some analysts are saying, that Iowa will just be a race for second place? Well, short answer, probably. <laughs> but, but that really doesn't matter quite so much because Iowa is about finishing in the top three, maybe four. If you can show well, then you're probably going to do well in some of the other upcoming primaries. So it's not so much who finishes first. Remember, Trump did not finish first in the 2016 Iowa caucus, and he went on to become president. So it's about closing that gap. If one of the candidates can can close that opinion poll gap from 32 points down to, say, 20 or even less, well, that'll be a huge result for whoever could do that. Yeah, and if it's any indication as to who might take this one in Iowa, the biggest margin of victory was ever just 12 points. So Trump's 32 is way beyond that. What should Americans be on the lookout for in the Iowa caucuses? Well, be on the lookout for who rises among those other candidates. Is it going to be DeSantis, who is polling in second place, or will Nikki Haley, who is building some momentum, will she eclipse him and uh, become the, this, the real uh, threat to upend President Trump's bid? Uh, what about Vivek Ramaswamy? If he's not polling nearly as well as the others, but it's so hard to tell. Iowa delivers surprises. So look for who finishes strong, not necessarily who wins. Right. And there's some talk that DeSantis might be pulling a lot of support from the evangelical vote in Iowa here, too. And it's good that you point out those notes from history for us. Lawrence Wilson, reporter for the Epic Times. Thank you. My pleasure. And a quick update on former President Trump's legal battles. A former U.S. Supreme Court law clerk claimed this week the high court is likely to rule against the Colorado Supreme Court decision to remove Trump from the state's primary ballot. Chris Landau told Fox News this week he's confident the ruling will be overturned with one look at it. Landau worked for Supreme Court Justices Clarence Thomas and the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Landau says it's one of the most anti-democratic decisions in U.S. history and, in his words, is a kind of lawfare. In a separate case, former President Trump is also asking a federal appeals court to delay his defamation trial involving E. Jean Carroll. That's set to start on January 16th. Manhattan federal jury in May found Trump liable for sexually abusing Carol in 1996 and awarded her a $5 million judgment. Trump's attorneys are appealing that judgment and are asking for a 90-day hold on the trial. Trump's legal team says it needs time to consider other legal moves, like taking the case to the Supreme Court. And stay with us, Fast and Furious star Vin Diesel has been sued by his former assistant. What is she alleging in her lawsuit? And what is she asking for? 
Experts are predicting an increase in holiday travel this season. Are airlines avoiding the problems they had last year? Get Travelers reports coming up. Good to have you back. The U.S. is warning Yemen's Houthi group to stop attacking ships in the Red Sea immediately. Pentagon spokesman Pat Ryder says the group has become what he calls bandits impacting international trade. Here's the Pentagon press secretary yesterday on the Houthi threat. And they really need to ask themselves if they've bitten off more than they can chew when it comes to taking on the entire international community and negatively impacting billions and billion do billions of dollars in global trade, economic prosperity, and international law. Ryder says the spike in recent attacks has affected the economic well-being and prosperity of nations around the world. He says the new task force will respond to Houthi attacks on commercial vessels and aims to ensure safe passage. The Biden administration took Houthis off the list of foreign terrorist organizations in 2021. That was in response to a humanitarian crisis in Yemen over concerns it was blocking civilians' access to basic aid like food and fuel. The U.S. started reviewing the Houthi status after it hijacked a ship and its crew last month. Houthi attacks in the Red Sea are forcing some shipping companies to reroute their cargo ships. This has caused some exporters and retailers to warn of potential cargo delays and product shortages. Germany's Hapak Lloyd and Hong Kong's OOCL said on Thursday they would avoid the Red Sea. They're the latest shipping companies to do so after attacks by Yemen's Houthi group. The hostilities are putting a chokehold on ship passage through the Suez Canal, which handles about 12 percent of trade worldwide. The cost to a ship container from China to the Mediterranean was up 44 percent in December alone due to the Red Sea disruptions, according to Freitos. Three Tacoma, Washington police officers were acquitted yesterday in the killing of an un unarmed man in 2020. Witnesses testified that Manuel Illis was shocked with a stun gun and forcefully restrained. Video footage showed one officer restraining Ellis by the neck as another fired a taser into his chest. The officers say they stopped Ellis because he was approaching a car turning at an intersection. They said his behavior was violent and that he attacked them. Police said they had no choice but to respond forcefully. Defense lawyers argued that Ellis died due to his drug use and a heart condition. Ellis had methamphetamine in his system at the time of his death. Prosecution witnesses testified that the officers were the aggressors and attacked Ellis unprovoked while he was standing on the sidewalk. The medical examiner ruled his death a homicide caused by oxygen deprivation. And a video captured Ellis telling officers he couldn't breathe. And Fast and Furious star Vin Diesel is being sued for alleged sexual battery. The lawsuit was filed in Los Angeles Superior Court by his former assistant, Asta Jonathan. She alleges that in 2010, Diesel forced himself on her at a hotel in Atlanta. Asta Jonathan is also suing Diesel's company, One Race Productions, and Diesel's sister, Samantha Vincent. The suit alleges that a few days before the incident with Diesel, the supervisor of One Race propositioned Jonathan. She alleges Diesel's sister, Samantha Vincent, who is also the president of his company, fired her hours after the hotel suite incident with the actor. In addition to sexual battery, the suit charges Diesel and other defendants 
with a hostile work environment, negligent supervision, and wrongful termination. Jonathan is also seeking a civil penalty of $10,000 for each violation. Warner Brothers, Discovery, and Paramount Pictures are reportedly in talks of a potential merger. And earlier we spoke with Don Ma, the host of NTD Business, to get the details of how this would affect consumers. This merger potentially could create uh, the biggest studio, movie studio in Hollywood, and it would create uh, the, big, uh, the third uh, largest streaming service in terms of uh, subscriber count. So if the merger does go through, that means uh, potentially the streaming services of these two uh, companies, which is uh, Paramount Plus and Max, they could merge into one. And just think about that. Uh, for those who are subscribed uh, to the, both of these platforms, uh, that could mean with just one app on your phone, uh, your TV, or your computer, you could watch a ton of things you could ever dream of. That's from uh, football, live football, in fact, um, to about every hit movie you can you can think of, and it'll probably be cost efficient as well. Because uh, before, if you're uh, subscribed to, to two streaming services, now you're just uh, paying for one. Interestingly enough, though, not everybody seems to think that they're necessarily better off together. But what else have you been seeing in terms of reactions to this? Yeah, like you said, despite uh, some potential positives, investors are actually uh, not liking the idea of this potential deal uh, because when the news broke, uh, shares of uh, Warner Brothers Discovery uh, afterwards actually went down. And here's the thing, Warner Bros. Discovery has a, around uh, $45 billion of debt and Paramount has around $15 billion of debt. Uh, so the ongoing decline in the TV business uh, and uh, uh, other things as well is expected to make it harder for the firms to deal with all that debt, uh, which will be combined after the merger. And it's, it's unlikely that um, the debt uh, will uh, go down because you'll need further debt uh, to make this kind of deal, uh, mm. the size of this kind of deal to happen. So, you know, investors at the end of the day are just looking at whether this will be profitable. Yeah, and Don, on that debt, they say you need money to make money, so that could pose a challenge. But just think about the synergy behind it. If Warner Brothers Discovery uses its international distribution to help boost Paramount's franchise, and then if Paramount uses its streaming for the children's programming to boost Warner Brothers streaming ambitions, that could really be, you know, a big plus for them. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely benefits to this merger, uh, a company with some worries, of course. And as the holiday rush ramps up, a slow-moving West Coast storm is threatening to disrupt travel. More rain will lash Southern California today as flood threats persist in some areas. This after heavy rain already wreaked havoc on some roadways. The storm system brought heavy rain to parts of coastal Southern California from Wednesday to Thursday, with rainfall ranging from one to five inches, with some areas receiving over six inches. The deluge caused knee-deep floodwaters, road closures and evacuations just before the holiday weekend. Although the worst impact occurred on Thursday, heavy rain today still poses a flooding risk in affected areas and beyond California. Holiday travel season is already underway. Airlines are expecting millions of passengers. Are airlines on track with timely service? Let's hear what travelers are reporting so far. Holiday travel is already in hectic full swing. Airlines feel confident they can handle the crowds. Last year's holiday flight debacle is still fresh in many people's minds. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says the government will be holding airlines accountable to operate smoothly and treat passengers well amid disruptions. 
AAA forecasts over 100 million Americans will travel 50 miles or more from home between tomorrow and New Year's Day. What are airline passengers saying so far? Flight's been good, uh, real consistent, a little bit of turbulence on that first flight coming in. Um, travel hasn't been too bad, uh, nothing like what we were expecting. Definitely better than last year for sure. Honestly, it was great. I flew standby, which the week of holiday, you know, is tricky to do, and I made it on the second try, so I'm feeling really lucky. feel like Santa's real. He's good. He's out there. But why are many New Yorkers and other travelers choosing to travel by train instead? Cheaper. Significantly cheaper. Okay, it's fast and then uh, you have time to relax. With millions of holiday travelers in transit, where are they going? Where did their journeys begin? I just landed from New York and I'm here visiting my family who live about like four hours south of here. I'm coming back for Christmas. I was just living in Santiago, Chile for the past year and a half. Vegas is the closest that we can get to Cedar City. That's where we're headed. Back to Utah, visit family and enjoy the holidays. While the weather remains an unknown factor, it seems like holiday travelers can at least expect a smoother experience than last year. Looks like it's pretty going pretty smoothly. How do you feel about your upcoming flight, is it? I'm ready, yeah, I'm gonna fly out tomorrow. Okay. But you know, I have taken the Amtrak, a 20 hour train ride from Chicago to New Orleans once. It's and cool. how was that? Yeah. You clickety click. <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Good to know. But now moving out of the snow and cold, a special kind of Santa is spreading Christmas cheer at the Florida Keys Aquarium Encounters. Santa put on a diving mask once again this year and started dishing out treats to the aquarium's residents. According to the Florida Keys News Bureau, Captain Spencer Slate of Slate's Cuba, Scuba Adventures, I should say, was doing the honors this year. He fed various reef fish, some curious cow nose rays, and a Florida lobster. Oh, that's a delicacy. And while the Florida Keys <laughs> National Marine Sanctuary's open waters are a no-feed zone for fish, visitors at aquarium encounters can follow Santa's example and feed the fish there and throw a wave to Santa while they're at it. Awesome. Um, yeah, that, that underwater scenery is really nice, all those different sponges and things. Yeah, but Santa just seems to be everywhere nowadays. Yeah. In Venice, on the boat, yeah, underwater. Right. Gondolas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. As the Christmas holidays approach, New York-based Chenyun Performing Arts is preparing to launch its 2024 touring season. Returning this year with an all-new program, the worldwide tour will encompass over 200 cities across 20 countries. The performances are made up of short pieces that take the audience on a journey through Chinese traditional culture. The company's mission is to revive China's 5,000 years of divinely inspired culture before communism. The first performance kicks off today in Nagoya, Japan, and then heads to the United States. Oh. We will have a special segment in the work when we get an inside look at what it takes to be a Shenyun dancer. Yeah, that's a, a lot of work that goes into that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, it was it was a very insightful interview because it was very in-depth and it's just incredible how much thought that goes into one piece like that and the history and the morals. It's Yeah, I, I would argue that it's worth to just keep an eye out for that one. Yeah, a lot of repetition to perfect those moves they do. Right, and you do it over and over again. I don't want to give too much away, but it is it is quite, you know, 
it's a lot of sweat and tears. Tune in. All right. Uh, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Leaf. And I'm Kevin Hogan.